the only person who's ever spoken in a way that was completely identical to his being, right, is God. When God speaks, there's the word. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am joined by a special guest today, Dr. Michael at Ave Maria University. Uh, super excited to have him. Dave is actually here in the background hiding. He's in the middle of picking up his kids uh, who spent uh, a couple weeks down at his folks' place in Dallas, and Dave's eyes were so glazed over, we are not going to make him conduct an early morning interview. So it's just me and the good doctor. How are you doing today, Dr. Michael? I'm doing great, and Gomer, thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, this is awesome. I first heard you on the Classical Theism podcast about two days after Word on Fire sent me the new book. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of this book. It was awesome. And then, and then uh, when I got the email from John over at the Classical Theism podcast where he sent it out to a bunch of us, I was like, yes, 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 yes. I would love to talk with them. Uh, and it's funny because right after that, I just bought a ton of academic books from Emmaus Academic because they were they were on a 40% off thing. I spent $400, but I got that sweet, sweet 40% off and I got a handful of your books again. So it's awesome that uh, I'm not stalking you. That's not what's happening. Well, at all. thanks so much, uh, Gomer. Uh, it's uh, there's there's nothing more uh, exciting than to have somebody actually read a book that one writes. So uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful and uh, I'm really excited to talk about the wisdom of the word uh, today with you. Yeah, you know what's really funny is uh, the, as soon as I get a book, I take the dust jacket off. And uh, <laughs> and, and yesterday, I went on uh, a handful of walks at night, and I put your – you have a Kindle book. This needs to be an audio book, by the way. It needs to be an audio book. But That's I have the Kindle it. edition. And I put my earbuds in, and I use the uh, accessibility feature for blind people, and it'll read to you the screen. And so <laughs> the only caveat is you have to have the screen on the whole time. So I walked around my blog for like two or three miles just listening and having a robot read to me your book. It was it was kind of a beautiful experience. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so why don't we first start off by talking just a little bit about you. I'm always interested because I'm a desperate wannabe academic who never got near uh, – I'm like Icarus. I got too close to the academic world and then I fell to the earth and now I do ministry full time in a parish. But um, how did you how did your Catholic faith come alive for you as an individual? Right. As someone who outside of the realm of studying theology academically, you know, how did Christ personally interact in, in yeah. you know, how did you encounter him in your life? Yeah, so I, I can remember going uh, to mass occasionally, having a first communion, first confession and then I remember just as a young man, a young, like young person, probably, you know, 9, 10, 11, just being overwhelmed with the sense that God did not exist mm -hmm. and very just strongly feeling that everything was just fake and I was going through motions and life had no meaning or purpose. Uh, and that's really the view that was very close to my uh, head and my heart. Uh, during those years. And then I think as I went off to college, I ended up uh, continuing to just reflect on these questions. I was always a rather kind of antagonistic 
uh, atheist who loved to argue uh, with uh, my uh, fellow fellow Christian friends and other things. And so I really took the question of truth seriously. And I remember reading in college more uh, atheistic philosophies. And also, I remember at that time uh, having a relationship with the woman who is now my wife. And I just remember kind of being like, well, is this genuinely true? You know, like, yeah. like is and I remember just kind of saying, you know, if 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 everything I believe about the world, that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, then why am I discovering meaning and purpose in my life? Mm. Right. You know, the most obvious thing for me was that I, I actually had discovered meaning and purpose through this relationship uh, that the world was somehow intelligible. And yet I believed everything that said it was not. It was merely a construct of power and a construct of accidents. So. Anyway, during that time, uh, I think I began to read more, talk to more people. And just at a certain time in the summer of uh, 1992, you know, uh, my, the scales fell off my eyes. And I just for a certain sense, I picked up a book about the Christianity. And for the first time, it just all made sense. And mm-hmm. so I really feel at that moment, you know, a lot of my kind of prideful and I would also say wounded hurts. You know, I'd lost a sister yep. um, who, you know, died when I was uh, younger all those things kind of disappeared, and I was simply able to recognize that uh, God had created me and that I had somehow broken the relationship with him and yeah. that, you know, God had put that right in uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, came back and was very came back to college at that time, got to know a lot of good Christians, was very involved in evangelical Protestant circles for a while while also being kind of having one foot in the Catholic world, one foot in the Protestant world. Uh, eventually, just through a lot of biblical study, a lot of studying of the church fathers, I immediately became a voracious reader of theological things and theological, just anything I could get my hands on about what Christianity really taught and how we should live. And uh, eventually kind of, uh, you know, uh, ended up coming back to the Catholic faith. Uh, I think especially because I I needed a, a home in which to read the Bible so that yeah. I didn't have to figure it out on my own. And I also felt that the Bible really called me to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ uh, that was sacramental, in which baptism mm-hmm. and the Eucharist were very central. And yeah. when I read the early church fathers, those the beliefs in the Eucharist and the baptism were very central. So yeah. it— seemed to me that the really that the church was really the home of the Bible, the home of Jesus Christ. Um, and I'm very grateful for, you know, many Protestant friends who helped deepen my love of the Bible and of Jesus Christ along was the way. Was there what what was the book that you referenced earlier? You said you read a book about Christianity and it and uh, it's interesting. It's actually a book uh, called um, by Catherine Marshall. Uh, Peter Marshall was kind of the Billy Graham before Billy Graham was Billy Graham. So Peter Marshall was more like in the 40s. And his uh, okay. wife, uh, Catherine Marshall, uh, was a famous kind of evangelical um, woman leader of the day. And I think a lot of her books were probably published in the 70s. Anyway, it was just a book. It was called A Closer Walk With Thee. And it was a collection of her daily prayer journals. And just for some reason, hearing her dialogue with God, with Jesus Christ, again, it just kind of opened me up to seeing um, that I might have, just as though I had discovered a personal relationship with my um, you know, girlfriend at the time, in a way that I could develop a personal relationship with my creator through uh, you know, his son, Jesus Christ. 
You know, it's interesting that you say that because it's almost like, you know, you hear stories of people reading the lives of the saints and they have a conversion. You know, all of these things, it's all that that almost sounds to me, you know, stop me if I'm reading too much into it, but almost like the way of beauty, right? Like you see the intimacy of this woman's relationship with God that doesn't feel forced, fake, or flimsy, right? Like uh, yeah. so keeping with the alliteration. And uh it here was this non-automaton Christianity. You know, you got to see the lived witness, yeah. and that's what and but it's funny because what you said was it made Christianity make sense for you in, in a way. And uh I, I don't know. I mean, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way of looking at it. I mean, it, sometimes I think that one of the problems with Christianity is its success, right? Is yeah. that when Christianity becomes more popular, um, becomes more institutional. Uh, and I don't mean just the you know hierarchical institution of the church, but I just mean right. you know everything from parish schools to parishes to hospitals and all these different things. You know, then you see all sorts of people that may or may not be living kind of mm-hmm. devoted Christian lives, but you tend to associate them with Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chesterton uh, said once that the problem with Christianity is that it's become too familiar. So familiarity breeds contempt. So people think they know what Christianity is. But actually, they know nothing about it. And I think in a lot of ways, that was my view. My view was that Christianity taught that all was well with the world, that God was nice, that we should be nice, and that if we were basically nice, then, you know, all would be well after this world. And I just thought this world was really a horrible place in many ways. And so I didn't, it didn't connect with me. And, you know, lo and behold, of course, that's not what Christianity teaches at all. It actually teaches that the world is so broken, right, that you know, God had to enter into our brokenness to die on the cross. So, yeah. right. But this is the idea that we have this kind of popular image of Christianity. And and in part, I will say that 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 idea is really partly some of the things that those motivations come out very clearly in this book. I feel like what one of the themes of this book is that um, many people right walk away from the church because they don't believe the fundamental teachings of Christianity. And in part, they don't believe the fundamental teachings of Christianity at least in part because they've never encountered them. And, you know, one of them is, right, who really is Jesus Christ? Who really is God? Uh, You know, in many ways, we have these kind of false images of God, either God, you know, the punisher, perhaps, or God, the kind of, you know, benevolent, senile person who will always let us come back home without us ever having to change. So, yeah. you know, yeah, those, the rich, crazy uncle instead of the yeah, father. Exactly. The, yeah. the, the, the nice but boring God or the harsh and kind of almost evil God. And yeah. right. Neither of those turn out to be true. So. Right. And so a lot of those things is the idea is that the Bible itself offers answers about yeah. who God is and who we are uh, and really how we can live. So how we can discover that meaning and purpose in our lives and that it becomes so personal uh, in the way the more that we can begin to understand how it's rooted, ironically, in the disclosure of the person, right, of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Uh, One theologian uh, said that the Bible allows us to know Jesus on God's terms. Mm. And, and, you know, that that, that for me really uh, speaks volumes. Yeah. One of the things, so just for our listeners, there are 10 chapters. Each chapter is framed around a specific and major question. The The subtitle is Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions about Catholicism. And one of the things that I love about this book is these are the questions that the majority of young adults, when I do young adult ministry, 
are asking, things that directly apply to their lives. And one of the things that I've seen, especially with parents who are watching their adult children leave the church, is when I get down and we talk with, you know, but we went to mass all the time. It was a part of our life. And it's like, okay, when did you address their questions? Well, I didn't know that they had. And so one of the big things is these kids feel usually in middle school, maybe a little bit in high school, they feel, especially if they're close with their family, if they have a tight knit family, they feel ashamed for their questions. So they never voice them publicly. Then they get into a high school or college environment where no one believes those things. You know, no one believes in Catholicism or whatever. They're all ex-Catholics, right? And so these questions become just amplified in an environment that's that is already in favor of a, you know, whatever, atheistic, hedonistic, whatever it might be. And so you find that these kids have never had the intellectual resources to be able to come to some sort of resolution. And I do the Sumville Youth Conferences, right? So I'm one of the speakers and I'll never forget it was in um it was in one of these huge arenas, about four thousand high school students. And I gave a talk on, you know, had a, a 20 minute talk on uh, proving God's existence, right? So it's kind of shenanigans, but I just went through and I said, none of these are going to satisfy. If you're really questioning, none of these are going to satisfy your heart. The answers that I have, they're going to be lame because I have five, you know, five seconds to kind of go through each one. And I said, but I want you to know that my hope is that all they do is light a fire that you'll go read, research, email, discuss with people who can walk you through it. And I said, but before I begin, the first thing I want to say is it's okay to have questions. It's okay to hang a question on God, Jesus, the church, Mary, the Eucharist. Like, what do you mean we believe that this is, you know, Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity still looks like the thing it was before the consecration. Yeah. This girl comes up to me. She's going into her freshman year at MIT, full yeah. ride, full scholarship, in tears because yeah. she said, I had no idea it was okay to ask questions. And so this book hits the major questions just to give a highlight like you were saying with me before the show the first four or so are more four or five are more dogmatic doctrinal type of you know like we got to get right thinking grounded fundamental thinking about god but then the rest why not live and think like everyone else why care for the poor why is the church so strict about sex why do Catholics fight so much with each other? I don't know what that's a reference about. Uh, <laughs> why uh, are the saints of the church too strange to be relevant? You know, it's like the holy. The more you love the church, the more you emphasize the weirdness of the saints and the people who are yeah. not there yet. They're like, oh, gosh, get away, you know. So you go through these very, very, I mean, even the dogmatic ones, you approach in a very practical light. So I want to thank you for that because you're answering, uh, you and Dr. Uh, Matthew Levering, you guys are answering questions that are honestly some of the most important ones out there. Uh, yeah, that's you've um, summarized, uh, I think, the, the heart of the book in so many ways, or at least the spirit of the book, which is this idea that questions are okay, right? Yeah. It's important for people to have questions. We're naturally questioning beings, right? The difference between raising a dog and raising a child is that the child begins to ask why, right? That's the light <laughs> of intelligence. The light of intelligence is that we ask why. Yeah. Why? You know, why daddy? Why daddy? And all these different themes. And so I think you're right. Um, and, you know, and it's hard too. not only is I think uh, sometimes people have a hard time expressing those questions. I really think that theme yeah. of shame is huge. Uh, I also just think in American culture today, we're not terribly intellectual. We're not really comfortable. What? 
discussing what are the intellectual reasons why you hold that political opinion or let's discuss this. You know, it just, we have a generally, we're very much, um, our, our, you know, I don't know how to put it. Like the emotions run high and we don't have a steady habit of reflection. So I think that's huge is letting people ask questions. So one of the things we did is we try to say, what are the key questions that are objections to the faith Mm. that are presented And we did a lot of, we read a lot of books on both some sociological quantitative data, you know, this, you know, 50% of Catholics don't believe in the uh, real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, or 50% of Catholics don't believe that they believe that God exists, but that he's not a personal God, right? You know, um, but we also, you know, a lot of the sociological studies also summarize interviews, they're more qualitative research, as it's called, and they'll talk just interview somebody who, you know, no longer practices the faith and they'll just say, oh, well, I went to college and yeah, I went to a Catholic college, but there just wasn't much Catholic culture. All there was, was just the secular culture. So it just after a while seemed that, or people that, you know, they were studying science, science seems to explain everything. And so they just stopped believing. So the idea is that these questions are relevant and they're expressed by people today But the thing we show is that in many ways, a lot of these questions are really perennial questions. They're exaggerated in modern culture, but they're really human questions, which means that often the Bible already answers those questions, right? (laughs) Uh, It's, you know, fascinating, right? Psalm 8 will say, right, uh, what is is man that you care for him or the son of man that you remember him, right? What, like, why, you know, if you think about how wonderful the world is, I mean, how big the universe is, then why would you care about us? Well, Psalm 8 asked that question. Yeah. So that's not a new question. Yeah, and Richard so you, Dawkins, I, I heard the soundbite from Richard Dawkins where that's what he said. If there really is a God of the universe, and we mean the whole universe, why would he care what happens on a little mud ball, you know, yes. here spinning around our insignificant sun in an yes. insignificant part of the galaxy and all this stuff? And it's like, he for the thing that frustrates me so much about Richard yeah. Dawkins everything frustrates me about Richard Dawkins when he has his arguments because they're so terrible. But one of the things that does, it's like he has this image of God as Zeus. Like he's this really powerful guy that exists in our sphere, you know, and that's it. Right. And he cannot take the arguments, even though he does of the four, you know, major new atheists, he spends more time on Thomas's five ways than the others. It's still, they just have such a stupid image of God that is so, uh, infantile that when they say these things like well you know why would he even care what it? it's like well don't you know what omniscience means like yeah. he knows every yes he knows what's going on inside a black hole and he knows what's going on inside your black heart and so yeah the, the, you know, it's it's interesting if i may um you know stephen barr yeah. who's a physicist who's a catholic physicist um and has written a lot on this topic but i remember he gave a talk once at ave maria and he just said that physicists have been so good at looking at what's in front of their eyes that they forgot what's behind their eyes. And <laughs> when we look at the universe, we tend to think of all we see is basically dirt and particles and fusion yeah. and fires. And we, we look at it all as all material. And we forget that when we look at the entire universe, we're looking at the entire universe. So among the entire universe, there's this thing called human beings that can are capable in a way of understanding the entire universe. So that's just yes. a fact. Like we yes. that's that's just as real as a supernova is my capacity to understand the supernova. So yeah. where does that come from? 
right? And not only that, but my ability to, right, do I, I can actually care for a person I've never met on the other side of the globe. I can read a story about people that never even existed in the Greek tragedies, right? Or in, say, Shakespeare's tragedies, and I can weep over them. So in a certain sense, what is man? What is what is human nature, human beings, men and women that have this capacity? And when we look at the universe, that's one of the things we have to take seriously. And so the question is, where does this intelligence come from? Where does this capacity to love come from? You know, and when we do that, then I think that really shifts the question. And it's much harder to understand how a universe right comes forward without any notion of um, God. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to hop on a couple of my favorite sections. So chapter one, why believe in God and in Jesus Christ? So I used to run the RCI. I oversee the RCIA now, but um, I have a deacon's wife who is incredible, Katie, and she runs it for me now. But when I was originally doing the RCIA, I, I always tinker with the flow of the catechumenate. Like, what are we going to study? How are we going to study it? And I, I do the same thing that y'all have. Like, I don't want to give a proof text. I want to give the impact of scripture, right? Like, so I walk them through from old to new. Like, we, when you read John chapter one, you have to understand it in line with Genesis chapter one and all of these things that I, I want them to understand. So one year I'm laying out and <laughs> the, the curriculum and one of it was, okay, so we're going to go with who is God? And then we're going to go, okay, who, what is the Trinity? And the, so God, the creator, which, you know, many people of non-religious, yeah, okay, creator, God, sure, spirit, whatever. So we're going to get right about like God and his relationship to creation, then Trinity, and then Jesus Christ, the incarnation stuff. But then one year I was like, no, God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, right? He's, he's God's definitive word to humankind. So I'm going to start with who is Jesus? And then I'm going to go from there to the Trinity. And it was a total disaster because, because people were like, you know, these are people who have never rationally thought about Christian faith in their life. Maybe they grew up going to church here and there, but they never rationally thought. So when I started going through incarnation and even just like, let's read scripture stories, you know, that illustrate that, you know, Jesus is more than just human, more than just an anointed prophet. Um, they were totally lost. I was like, all right, let's back it up. I can't talk about Jesus without talking about the God thing first. And y'all did both. I love it. So what, let's talk a little bit about the methodology in chapter one. What made you want to do both God and Jesus Christ in one uh, specific chapter? So the way I would begin that is that when we look at the universe, right, we talked about considering our own intelligence, when we see yep. the sunset, Right. When we see the beauty of the world, we can understand, right, that God had to be, right, this beautiful artist, right, this intelligent artist. But when we also confront the mystery of suffering, war, cancer, right, all these horrible depression, right, all these other things that there's so much suffering in the world, we also, in a way, understand why Jesus had to die on the cross, right? And so that I think that's just the Christian message. The Christian message yeah. is, is both. The world is ordered and good. And it comes from a good and wise creator. And something cataclysmic has happened at the heart of our world. And then really at the heart of our lives. And I think yeah. that's really the beauty of Christianity um, is doing both of those things. So that's one reason why I think we have to tackle the question of why believe in God and in Jesus Christ. 
Um, yeah. So that's the first uh, theme. The other thing I think also kind of goes back a little bit to maybe just looking at the whole of part of the reason why we wrote the book is that if people are walking away from the church because they don't believe the teachings of the church, one of the things in helping people recover that has to be recovering a belief in the Bible. And what I mean a belief in the Bible is not just that the Bible is true, but that the Bible, that I can understand and hear the meaning of Scripture. And so, right, it's like learning a language. If I'm going to learn a language or if I'm going to visit a for- if I'm going to visit Paris and understand French spoken in Paris, well, I have to get to know the country a little bit. I have to get to know some vocabulary, grammar. I have to know key events, key stories. It takes time. I need a tutor showing me what's going on. Well, the same for scripture. I think many people, they just don't even know enough about scripture to be able to, yeah. Um, yeah. to be able to believe it, even if they kind of vaguely think it's probably a special book or something. Yeah. So I had a a friend say their favorite Bible verse was, what was it? Let go and let God or no, it was uh, God helps those who help help themselves. (laughs) Not actually in the Bible. And um, it's funny how many Americans think that, right? It's Ben Franklin or something, right? Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And not even necessarily (laughs) helpful. So so that idea is just that. Right. Well. The whole point is that we need to learn the language of scripture. And that means basically so what we do in this book is we try to act as like a travel guide or a language tutor trying to help people see what are the fundamental questions? How does the Bible begin to answer them first in the Old Testament and then in the New? And and I think it's hard too, right? Um, Yeah, I love uh, Pope Benedict said at one time in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, at the one point he just says, look, I know there's been a lot of historical critical studies and a lot of people are not even sure right, about the Bible or different things, how historically accurate it is or how, and, and he just says, ultimately, I trust the Gospels. And I feel like we just have to have that certain sense that ultimately, I trust that the scriptures are meaningful and truthful and are communicating something to me that I need to know, that I need to know in order to live my life. So I think if we do that, I think we're in a good position and to realize in a way that the the biblical word creates a world in which we are invited to enter. It's kind of like reading a great story and wanting to live in it. Well, this actually is that. Um, And, you know, the catechism will say that Christianity is not a religion of the book. And that's true, right? It's religion of Jesus Christ. But it is a religion with a book. So the book becomes (laughs) very important for coming to know Jesus Christ. Uh, And, you know, Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm. Some people, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want, right? Um, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? This beautiful psalm, this beautiful Mm -hmm. thing. Well, right, we're not called to know the psalm. We're called to know the shepherd. But we can't come to know the shepherd unless we come to know the psalm. But because when I look at the universe as it is right now, Right. Maybe with my migraine, maybe with my family member who's suffering, maybe with, you know, you know, uh, what, an eighth of the world that doesn't have access to clean drinking water. Right. Mm -hmm. Wars, all these other things. I don't see a shepherd. I don't see a shepherd when I just look out at the world. And when I look at my own heart, I don't see a shepherd. So I need the Bible to tell me that there is a shepherd for me of me. Behind the universe, in the universe, governing the universe, right? And that, to me, is really what the Bible does. The Bible opens up to me, right, who God is behind um, the universe. Yeah. So when I open the book, right, when I get the book, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick the questions that I think 
I need to read first. I'm going to I'm going to do the thing that breaks my brain, which is not read from beginning to end. I always read from beginning to end, which is why I don't read as many books as I want to because I I'm a completionist. I don't know if you're like that. CS Lewis, we were talking a little bit earlier about how you teach CS Lewis. He talks about like there's no need to always, you know, start and read the whole thing, but I'm like, I can't help it. Uh I was like that with my Twitter feed. It was awful. But when I opened the table of contents, I think chapter 3 was it drew me more than any other chapter. Does the Holy Spirit actually transform Christians? And I think this is one of the hardest parts of preaching the gospel, especially to fallen away Catholics, because they say, well, look, or, or to Jews, or to Jews, because I get the same comment from both. If it were true, you should be different. You're not different. Therefore, it's not true. And they say, you probably, like, okay, uh, I was going through, when I was taking my walk yesterday, I was going through, why would God hold our faults against us, which is chapter five. And one of the lines was Jeremiah, right? The promise of a new heart, Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, right? The idea of like, yeah, but I'm still just as petty, you know, <laughs> as I was before and after communion. Or I'm, you know, like uh, this one Jewish rabbi was talking to my, uh, a buddy of mine, Charles, and he said, you know, we believe that when the Messiah comes, the lion will lay down with the kid, like yes. uh, the the lamb, you know, like, and here you are as Christians, you start more wars than anyone else. And you do, you're one of the greatest perpetrators of violence and all this stuff. Where's the, where's this transformation? Where's this new art? So I, I, I would love to talk a little bit about this. What struck you guys to really, you know, tackle this point about the Holy Spirit transforming yeah. people? Well, partly this comes again from questions that when we uh, did some of our studies, we noticed a lot of people might complain, as you pointed out, that Christians aren't holier or that maybe most of the people at their, or at least as, as it occurs to them, right, a lot of the people at their parish or maybe at their chapel at their college campus or Catholics at their college campus are not very serious about their faith. Yeah. Right. On the one hand, of course. Who ultimately knows? Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes that might just be our judgment and people may be uh, inwardly more serious about their faith than we would know. But it's also the case that it's cer certainly true that we have many baptized Catholics who do not really seek to live a life that's fully transformed. And then we have also those who seek to live a life transformed by the gospel who still struggle yeah. very much with sins like, uh, you know, anger or, you know, lust or, right, you name it, just all the different, you know, pride, right, all of these different things. So we think that that's a problem. That's a problem. That's a pressing problem, which is what is it about it? And I think to a certain extent, we have to realize that we bring, like, what are the expectations that we bring? And in many ways, especially in modernity, we bring expectations of immediate transformation, we want problems solved. We don't want to learn how to suffer problems. We want to fix problems. Uh, and, yep. and just, you know, this is outside the book, but just real quickly, right? Even if you look at, say, you know, Rene Descartes, uh, Descartes, when he writes, you know, he writes his book and he says, uh, the discourse on method, he says, if you follow my method, we can become masters and possessors of nature. Um, Karl Marx <laughs> once wrote, that the job of philosophers up until that time was to interpret the world. Now it is our job to fix the world, to change the world. Yeah, to and change the world. And I just think in many ways, yeah. we yeah. think 
in a post-Christian sort of way that we should be able to fix the world. We ought to fix climate change. We ought to fix COVID. We ought to fix everything. So we expect Christianity ought to have fixed the world by now. And I just mm. think that is like basically it's a post-Christian heresy. It's a heresy that says we can have heaven on earth. And the beauty of the Gospels is that that's not what Jesus promises. Jesus yeah. promises a unique way, right? We're supposed to pray every day uh, in the Our Father, right? That, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So somehow in which God's name will be holy, his kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, what, how, what does that mean? Does that mean in a way that we're now going, Jesus is going to judge the nations, that he's going to put evil people and evil countries under his heel and, right? And we begin to see, no, that's not what he taught. What he right. taught is that he was going to give the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is a pledge of eternity, is going to come into the world. And the way we kind of try to describe it in the book is that what we want is a spirit of earthly power. We want a spirit of earthly power yeah. that might you know, make us live 20 years longer, maybe give us better abs, a uh, spirit of power that would make us <laughs> eloquent, uh, that would make us no longer struggle with sins, that would make yeah. us uh, humble, you know, right? That's what we want. We want a spirit of earthly power, but what they, he offers is just the Holy Spirit. And mm. the Holy Spirit in Jesus's life didn't bring about earthly power, right? It brought about this unique power of God's merciful love that loved us to the end, right? That loved us unto the cross. And somehow in that right, mystery undid the brokenness and woundedness of our own separation from God. So that is the, really the love when he, you know, when Adam and Eve were created, when we were created, right? In Genesis 2, 7, it says God breathed into us a living spirit. He breathed his own breath into us. Then in John 20, uh, 23, when Jesus appears to the upper room with the apostles, he breathes on them his holy breath, right? He breathes on them the Holy Spirit, it says. Same word in the Greek, by the way, uh, from breathing and spirit. And so that spirit that he gives is the spirit that, that, that led him to the cross. So we have a spirit of, in a way of, that unites us to God in the midst of suffering and love. Uh, and I think, you know, one, one story that I like from the Bible is where Paul in 2 Corinthians says that he has a thorn in his side, some kind of suffering. We don't know if it's a temptation. We don't know if it's an illness, some inability to preach the gospel. We just don't know. But he says he asked yeah. the Lord three times to remove it. And uh, God said, um, no. <laughs> he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in our weakness. Um, yeah. So the, the, the key theme that we really try to get to is this idea is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Jesus Christ preached the kingdom of God. It is at hand. In his resurrection, death has been defeated. Yeah. Sin has been forgiven. But it's not yet consummated. We live right now in the time in between the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom and then the consummation of the kingdom, right? We're in the time between the wedding and the consummation of the marriage, right? You know, yeah. most of the time that's a few hours, but for us, that's our lives. That's our, these, the millenniums yeah. in which we live is that time between Jesus. Yes, the kingdom is inaugurated. The Holy Spirit is given, 
but it will not be fully realized. We will not be completely transformed until the um, Holy Spirit. So therefore, right, like the Jews, we remain in a way waiting for Christ to come and establish the full kingdom. But unlike the Jews, we believe that he has come and inaugurated his kingdom. How do I capture and pass down insights and truths that are meaningful? Hi, I'm Jeff Cavins, the creator of the Bible Timeline Learning System, and I created the Insight Journal. Within the Insight Journal is a system to keep track of the best insights of life in an organized and easily accessible way. No more rummaging through journal after journal to find that one insight from prayer that you want to share. I have done months of research to create the best journal for you to keep your golden nuggets of truth. Get ready to write your insights from Mass, the Bible, talks, and more in a beautiful cloth-covered journal with a ribbon, strap, and interior folder. To order your copy of the Insight Journal, go to ascensionpress.com forward slash Insight Journal. Yeah, one of the things like that question. So he, my buddy, was having coffee with this rabbi who I think they went to high school together, and he said, you know, what did Jesus accomplish? And you know, he said he gave a handful of answers. You know, preach the truth. He died for our sins. Well, I don't believe that. Okay, you know, but what what are the fruits and and results of it? And it was funny because I was looking for something tangible, you know, in order to say. And I loved your your idea of like a modern heresy of just trying to fix it, right? But um, the answer I gave, it took me a year to see it, but, and I, I want your thoughts on this, I, it was, I, I went up to him and said, if you look at the history of Israel's own history in the Bible, and this is one of the reasons why I point to all my little atheists, uh, they're so smart, my atheist high school students, right, who know everything, um, and just roll their eyes at the Bible even though they've never read it, um, I always tell them that the Bible is its own most severe critic in terms of the people of Israel, right? Yes. And I said over and over again in the Old Testament, you had Israel who actually had a ongoing lived encounter with the God of the universe who manifests himself as both their national God and the God of all gods, right? The God of all the nations. And all they wanted to be was instead of being in relationship with the God of all the nations, they wanted to be like all the nations. They constantly were tempted to idolatry. And I said, so the, the kind of answer I came up with was in all the history of Judaism, ultimately it was their quarantining from the pagan nations that allowed them to finally kick the habit of polytheism and, and turning to the idolatry. I said, but where the cross is raised, the idols come tumbling down, right? Like today you go to Athens, you go to Rome, they are literally in ruins, you know, all these idols that an entire culture propped up that it's, you know, emperors enforced at the, the end of the sword are, you know, now on top of them is a cross, you know, or a crucifix, the very symbol of, you know, Roman divinity of, you know, the, the deified Caesar and his son right now, you know, they're, they're, I mean, Augustus might be a little bit more than a footnote in history, but most of these great men and their deities are like children's stories compared to what the cross 
gave us, you know, and he was like, Oh, I like that. I got to have coffee with him one more time. You know, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, you know, I definitely think that's, I, I think one of the things you're pointing there to the, the witness of the martyrs yeah, in many ways, right? What does the spirit give us? The spirit gives us the power to witness to Jesus. Unfortunately, the word for witness in the old test <laughs> in the, in Greek is not merely talk, have coffee with someone, although that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, you know, you know, give back ten dollars when the cashier over, uh, you know, gives you too much money in return. Although that is also a wonderful witness. Right. Unfortunately, yeah. the Greek word for witness is martyr. Right. That's the word yeah. for, you know, and that it comes from it's. So the, when we have the power, right, when in the beginning of Acts, when Jesus says, right, I will give you, you know, the spirit will come upon you and you will have power. Right. Um, the power mm. to, you know, mm. be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, again, he also says, right, don't worry when they bring you before courts, when (laughs) they are going to persecute you, because my spirit will tell you what to say. So the spirit, in a way, is the spirit to witness, but it's really the spirit to become a martyr. And Mm. the beautiful thing is that there are so many martyrs in the church, right? The first 23 popes were martyred. The apostles were martyred. Why was everyone dying for something that, you know, that seems to me that's kind of in a way compelling evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. And yeah. it's, they didn't, you know, and, and they, and then again, this sense that like even the discovery of vocations, right, that, that a young woman in the Roman Empire could choose not to marry and become a virgin for Christ. Many of them yeah. were martyred for that. Like that again, that's heroic. You talk about the full equality of women as having individual personal vocations before God, right? We see that in the early church. So I think that is something to say that, and in a way that those martyrs, and they continue to this day in many countries, uh, that they that they in a way do last, right? Jesus has that line where he says, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And, right, that obscure prophet from Nazareth, with these unlettered, for the most part, at least certainly un, yeah. they they weren't well educated by any means, fishermen yeah. and tax collectors, right? In the that his words are still being said over two thousand years later around the earth. How many masses right now are, are saying, right? This is my body and this is my blood. So I do think there is a way that our faith doesn't rest on history, right? Our faith mm-hmm. um, is is a belief, you know, beyond what was. Um, you know, and something beyond something that can be seen. But I think when we look at the history, we can also sense that way saying Jesus did rise from the dead. People did die for it. They continue to die for that truth. And that has, in a way, transformed the world, right? Even, yeah. you know, the fact that, you know, um, I mean, the fact that we have hospitals, the fact that we have all sorts of different things in many ways uh, arose from Christian uh, practice around the world. Uh, another thing that I love about your book, and Everyone who knows and listens to this show knows I have become obsessed lately with uh, the Catholic theology of atonement. And I've uh, we had Dr. Edward Shree on the show a few weeks ago, and I just said, like, Let, let's just talk about this. And yeah, here's the deal. This is the this is the thing that makes me so mad about your book is because the way you do it is how I uh, obviously you do it ten times better, but how I would want to talk about redemption because. It's understood in the in the New Testament, N.T. Wright says, when we talk about 
the death of Jesus and our redemption. We use a handful of words. Redemption and ransom, which are slave market terms. Sacrifice, which is a temple term. And justification, which is a court term. Yes. And the thing that I love about your book, well, at first, when I was first reading it, I was like, oh, wow, they split. You kind of split between chapter um, four and five what the death of Christ accomplished, but five being more the justification kind of turn yes. and four being the redemption ransom kind of turn, right? The sacrifice. But it's amazing. You guys did it the way I feel like is not done well in Catholic apologetics or is not done often in this way, which I think more is like the way the church fathers would do it. It's like, okay, why did Jesus die on the cross? His horrible, bloody death. Like why was the crucifixion how he accomplished our salvation. Well, let's talk about sacrifice. Let's talk about in the Old Testament. Let's talk about the importance of blood, the significance of blood, the significance of sacrifice throughout the whole Bible. Let's talk about Abel. Let's talk about all this stuff. And then you talk about the death of Jesus, and then you bring up all these things uh, with St. Paul's interpretation of our reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you go right into the Eucharist, right? And so many people, I feel like, when they're presenting Catholic theologies of atonement, however they do it, right, whether satisfaction theory or they tend to focus on Christus Victor or whatever, so often they just focus on the one act on Good Friday. And they miss the Holy Thursday extension yeah. into time in the life of the church. Yeah. They miss the fact that, like St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, the, the sacraments, right, demonstrate what happened before the Paschal Mystery, communicate what the Paschal Mystery accomplished, which is grace, and prefigure what awaits for us all, namely glory. Like, so yeah. right at the center of our sacramental life is the, is the Paschal Mystery. And I began thinking, and I'm interested in your feedback on this on top of just spending the rest of our time together talking about atonement. The notion at its core of the Bible, it is... Uh, so I, I feel like a lot of Catholics are Protestants with the sacraments attached, right? Like we have this, like, I know what the Bible is. I know what Jesus is. I know, you know, I have this faith and this is, I would say the biggest struggle for me down in Texas. They're all like Baptists who go to mass, meaning they like yeah. Jesus died for me. God, the father punished him. He poured his wrath on him. He took my place. Yeah. Some of that is okay. Most of that is not right. But within that context, they see the the church, the hierarchy, and the sacraments as something added on to it. So I do a bunch of prison ministry. I'm wearing my little prison ministry Colby retreat shirt right now. Wonderful. But, um, yeah, and so one of the things that these men, they're all anti-Catholic, right? There's so many of them are anti-Catholic in yeah. the inmates, and they all, they all say the same thing. The number one question I get asked is, why do Catholics add to the finished saving work of Jesus Christ yeah. with all their sacraments? You got to go to here and do that. Faith alone saves. And so when I talk with them, I, I realized at one point, I said, if the sacraments are true and what the Christ claims them to be, then they have to be throughout the whole scriptures, right? They have to be in a way prefigured, inaugurated, or instituted, and then lived, right, throughout the whole of scriptures. And then when you go back and you actually read the catechism on the sacraments and on salvation and on grace— you see these phrases like the whole life of Christ is salvific in a particular way, the Paschal mystery. You know, yes. they are powers that go forth from Christ, and there's thousands of biblical references. So when I began doing this, I start people with Romans, 
for what could be known about God. God has made it evident to them, namely through the things he has made. And then we go yes. back to Genesis, and then we go to Moses and his staff. And why does Moses have to shove a staff into the Nile like for it to turn into blood, could God not have done that, you know, on his own, right? Couldn't they just have faith? No, because that's how you knew he was the one with authority is he had the shepherd staff over his people, you know? And so you go through and you see the sacramental reality, you know, the, the Nazarite vow of Samson, right? He had to abstain from alcohol, not cut his hair, avoid women. What is he doing? He's always drunk. He's hooking up with Philistine prostitutes. But it isn't until they cut his dang hair that he loses his strength. Why? Does the length of his hair matter? Yes. It's the outward sign instituted by God that communicates, you know, the spirit of the Lord coming upon him and giving him the supernatural strength, right? And so when you begin to see it, you're like, oh, oh, there really is why did Jesus spit on the ground and make clay and shove it? Couldn't he just have? Couldn't he just have? Right. Yeah. And there are certain times in the New Testament where Jesus heals by a word, but it's almost always by the contact, right? By an interaction, the woman touching his garment, you know, and yes. all that stuff. And so uh, going back, like the way you connect the sacrifice of, you know, the Levites to the 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 flow of this that's this is going to sound weird the flow of blood from the beginning to the end makes sense of not only the gospel but the whole bible and not only that but first holy communion going to church every week going to daily mass it makes sense so i want to thank you for the way that you did that what was the impetus for constructing that's a wonderful it that way? um by the way that's a i think you've summarized uh the book better than we wrote it so uh thank you so much you're welcome Dr. you're welcome I love the way you um pull out <laughs> yes the the that yeah, I think, you know, Catholics struggle with both atonement and with justification. So, right. How does yeah, Jesus yeah, yeah. Death make a difference for us? And then secondly, you know, how is it that that is a gift of salvation? So with this question about the, just throughout the new Testament, it talks about the blood of Christ. Um, yeah. And so we just thought like, well, but people today think that that's weird and they think that the Eucharist is weird. And I think partly the reason why people don't believe today that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ is because they don't believe that the body and blood of Jesus Christ really matter. You know, if you genuine, so I feel like you're much more inclined and, you know, in some ways with like when the people you're, were discussing uh, who are perhaps anti-sacramental or anti-Catholic and they say that, you know, look, faith alone is enough. I would say, well, what are you believing in? Well, I'm believing that the blood of the lamb shed for me has washed me so that I am now Mm. clean. And my, you know, and in some ways I think what you summarized very beautifully is that, and where is that blood, right? Is that blood eternal, right? Who shed the blood? If the one who shed the blood is the eternal word of God, then that blood is eternally shed. It's not shed again and again and again. It's shed once and not forever, but once and for always. Yeah. So, right, that same blood is, this is exactly all it is. That's, we're washed in the blood of the lamb. Absolutely. Right. It you is know, what's that cool is when, when, that when you us. were saying that, I had, uh, I have my favorite app, which is BibleGateway.com brought up. And I was looking for a verse when you were talking about martyrdom as, you know, the, the witness of the yeah. Holy Spirit convicts us. And I was trying to, I always lose this word. And I know it's in Revelation 12, but I always, I always lose it. But it was this notion in the Old Testament, there's one spot, according to a footnote in the NAB, that says, this is the only time something is considered greater than life. And it was in, uh, it's like Psalm 67 or 73. I always confuse where it is, but it says, your love is greater than life. Talking about God's love. And uh, it says, this is the only time that's mentioned in the Old Testament, obviously not in the New Testament. 
And I was thinking there was this great phrase, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and of their testimony because they did not love their lives unto death. That's one of the, that's one of the translations. And I just thought it was so funny. Like I was like, oh, I want to find that verse and maybe I'll bring it up. And right when I brought it up, we both, I was reading and you were saying the blood of the lamb at the exact same time. And, and, and that's the beautiful gift is like, even in the book of revelation, the blood of the lamb is still working. Yeah. It's the thing that conquers the Satan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the one thing we got to think about, well, it's so Blood seems very weird and strange. Yeah. But then that we want to say, is it? Blood is also at the heart of sacrifice. Is sacrifice strange? And and I just give, you know, kind of two uh, examples. One is even in our own society, we know that mm-hmm. great accomplishments require sacrifice. Right? We have mm-hmm. to sac we have to make sacrifices. If you're going to be an Olympic athlete, you have to make sacrifices. If you're going to accomplish a lot in the world, you have to sacrifice other things, right? You have to stop playing video games so you can work or or if you're going to become famous playing video games, right? You have to do that all the time, <laughs> right? Whatever yeah. it is. Um so but the key thing is most of these sacrifices in a way are often for our own ego. Um yeah. and often we end up sacrificing better things for our pleasures. Right. We sacrifice a good relationship for the pleasure of an affair. Right. You know, we just sacrifice all over the place. And in a way, if I've done something wrong, I have to make a sacrifice to make it up. How do we right wrong, old wrongs of history? It's really complicated. And in a way, somehow we got to say, like, well, we can't fully do it on our own because ultimately the sacrifice we would need to give would not be merely something external, Not even the ancient sacrifices of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, they were always shown to be the external sacrifice of an internally sacrificed heart. And the problem is, is that our hearts can never fully sacrifice themselves because it's our own egos that are part of the problem. So even when I sacrifice myself for another person, there I am sitting there saying like, oh, I did that. Right. And so... We need a new sacrifice in which, right, Jesus Christ offers the complete sacrifice. And in a way, that's why it says, like, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. On the cross is a new creation. Mankind is recreated because, right, the ego itself is sacrificed, right? Mm -hmm. And in there, then in a way, we get a blood transfusion, right? If I'm sick, I need a blood transfusion. Well, if I'm morally sick, if I'm spiritually sick, I need the blood of Christ, Because the blood of Christ loved unto the end. It's the complete sacrifice of all earthly idols, earthly power, for the sake of saying, I love my father. I'm going to spend my eternity in communion with God, and I'm going to bring, right, my brothers and sisters, I'm going to open up a way for them to come and follow me, right? And so that sacrifice is no longer the sacrifice of giving up money or giving up power, giving up possessions, right? But it's it's a restoring of our hearts. And then the beautiful thing is because that one sacrifice that Jesus Christ made is not an external thing, but through the Eucharist, that blood enters into me, right? Which mm. gives me new life. And yes, I have to accept it in faith, right? Even yeah. Thomas Aquinas will say, right, hearing alone believes that the bread and wine are the body and blood of Jesus Christ, right? I yeah. can't taste it. I can't touch it. I can't see it. So this is why then, I think, and that's why when we present Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, we should see is like, thank God, that sacrifice I've always wanted to make. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had, uh, you know, teenagers or or yourself where 
Wouldn't you love one day to have like a family in a burning building and to be able to sacrifice yourself to go heal them or, you know, do something heroic to kind of like, and like, and it, you know, sometimes somebody pointed out, it's much harder, of course, to be a hero in daily life than it is um, in, in a yeah. extreme event. But I think we do have that certain sense that if I could make a great sacrifice, my life would have meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is in a way, right, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ makes. But the beauty is he doesn't just make it separate from us. He makes it and then he represents it in our own lives. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, it is funny how so much of so much of religion, right? Whether you're talking about Judaism, the Old Testament, Catholicism, it is easy to hide behind this was a critique I hear. It is easy to hide behind in a sacramental system the externals of the sacrament and hide from True, like for a Protestant will say, well, you go to confession, it's like a car wash for you, but are you truly repentant? You go to mass, you receive communion, you know, do you, and you, you may or may not have a relationship with Christ at all. You don't ever pray. And yet you go to mass and receive communion every week. It's for certain people, it's easy to kind of hide behind the sacramental system. And until one day I had this, uh, non-denominational person who came from a, a mega church here in our city. And he was just like, for him, the liturgy was the most confrontational thing because from his non-liturgical eyes, right, what he saw was it was easy for me to hide behind my Starbucks coffee, sitting in a chair, listening to beautiful music sung by a very talented band, you know, praise and worship band, to hear an inspiring message and then to say some prayers and go and leave. He said, and when I came with my wife's family to Mass, here I am being confronted with my sin in the very beginning, my fault, my fault, like all this stuff. And he was like, it, it, for him, the liturgy was something he couldn't hide from. And it's interesting how you can have these two different uh, perspectives. But when you look in the Psalms, like Psalm 51, you know, the famous penitential Psalm, right? He talks about that uh, sacrifices don't suffice. These blood offerings, you know, all this stuff, um, what he says, uh, you, for you have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. A sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite art you won't despise. And here's that that experience of like, even though the sacrificial system exists, it exists in ancient Judaism as a sign of conviction of that inner heart. And once you have that inner heart, you know, and it, Psalm 51 ends with him saying, then will you delight in right sacrifice, right? Like once I have the contrite heart, then the thing I'm doing to worship you that you instituted takes on the actual meaning it's meant to have. And the same is true in our in our Catholic faith. Yeah, maybe one way of trying to summarize that as well is that one of the things we want to make sure, right, is that God has spoken into history. And we believe he's done yeah. that in Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Well, how does that message that Jesus Christ is and has communicated reach us. And Mm. in many ways, right, that's through the sacraments and through scripture, right? That the scripture is meaningful and truthful communication of his words and his message and his actions. And at the same time, so are the sacraments, right? That the sacraments and liturgy, and I often talk about this too, when you think about why listen to the church, well, what is the church saying? Remember, like the church is not the latest policy on you know, COVID in uh, restrictions in a parish. That's no. that, that's not the church speaking. We're, we're talking about the church is really Christ himself speaking. And so the words of Christ, right, are 
that we hear in the church are, right, this is my body, right, given for you. This is my blood, right, you know, shed for you. It's I forgive you. I, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's like basically this is where we go to get our sins forgiven, and it's through the sacraments. And so the sacraments become this objective anchor of my faith. Yes, I need to have personal faith, but my personal faith can kind of go up and down over times. I may be more enthusiastic at certain points in my life. I may be more overwhelmed and crushed at different points, but I can trust in the sacraments. And the beauty in a way is that Christ shows up at the mass, even if I sometimes can only drag my body there, right? My heart may be so broken yeah. some days that I'm just there, but yeah. that's okay because the mass in a way is about Jesus, and the beauty thing is in there, I can just rest in his love, in his sacrifice. Yeah. And so that's where I feel like the sacraments give that kind of objective anchor of our faith, because they're the ways in which Christ's love and uh, the gift of his life continue to be present to us, both, again, in Scripture and the sacraments. And right, it's from Scripture that we learn about the sacraments, and it's in the sacraments that we encounter Scripture. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, big question here. Why do Catholics fight with each other so much? Why do we uh, fight? Why do we yes, fight? Well, right, it's, it's, I think there was a t-shirt uh, that a friend of mine used to wear. I yell because I care. So I think, you know, there, there is something to be said that like we have something worth arguing about. Mm. Uh, and, and that's really beautiful. We are a big family. Mm. Right. And, um, and because we're a family, you know, we fight in a way and, you know, it, it's not like a, you know, if you go to a, a company in which everyone agrees with one another, right? It's like, that's kind of a scary company in a way. I mean, some companies, yeah. it's fine to have good company culture, but you can basically get rid of people who disagree. Yeah. Right. Because it's not a family. It's an external right. thing. Whereas the Catholic church is a, it's, it's a family We're we're baptized into it, right? We, we remain in it. So there is a sense in which kind of, it's a, it's a big, messy family. It's got lots of history. Uh, it's loud and all these different things. Um, I think that also goes to the culture of trying to fix everything, right? Like, oh, you should be fixed and fine. And, you know, everyone should be all in lockstep. Yes, yes. But we do. I mean, we even quote some people at the beginning who, you know, people who left the church because they heard, you know, priests gossiping about each other. I mean, it's right. This Mm -hmm. is also a problem. So what we want to do is we look at uh, speech in three ways. First, we look at um, the teaching of the Bible, which is that we need to be we need to we need to avoid evil speech. Right. You know, James will talk about the fact that like we can, you know, we, you know, we can tame animals, but we cannot tame our tongue and our Mm. tongue wreaks havoc in our own lives and in the lives of others. And if we don't kind of recognize that, then we're not really being uh, faithful Christians. We just we like we hurt others through our language. It may be well intentioned, but the impact can really harm others. You know, gossiping is a problem. It, it, and it, it, we, we really have to work on, uh, you know, looking at our motives uh, and, and, and questioning that. So a lot of the Bible really does at many different times talks, tells us to watch our words. Uh, St. Paul often says, let our words edify, build up others. And he, uh, in Ephesians, he will actually say, don't let your language grieve the Holy Spirit. Somehow our words can grieve the Holy Spirit that's in us when we speak in a way that is um, inappropriate. But then the second thing we also do is that our language is also meant to be truthful and prophetic, which means we also have occasionally the duty and obligation and just, you know, to make corrections of others, to say, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe there's another way of considering this. 
or yeah. um, we're able That's to Dave's also- favorite part. He loves yes. playing the role of the prophet. That's Dave yeah. always telling me I'm wrong. Right. And um, and that's also just, you know, part of it. Right. John the Baptist uh, spoke clearly to King Herod and, uh, you know, died as a result of it uh, for mm. challenging his uh, moral relationship. So this is just another thing that that's yep. that because the truth matters, we have the ability and occasionally, um, you know, the duty to speak out. Uh, yep. And and I think the so the beautiful thing we try to do is say those two things are real and we just have to be aware of both of them. We have to avoid evil speech, but we also have to be willing to receive and occasionally give challenging speech. And then the third thing is to remember is that human beings are not going to fix this problem on our own. We cannot fix it at the horizontal level. We can't just go to enough kind of communications classes with one another's, right? No, we need God's help. So fundamentally, what is our speech for? It's to praise God, Mm. right? And in a way, the Psalms kind of teach us how to, right? They teach us to say, we're sorry to God. They teach us to say, help me, God. They teach us to say, I am drowning, right? You know, I am drowning. Please rescue me. But they also teach us to simply say, right, praise the Lord. The last Psalm of the Bible, right, says praise the Lord, I think, you know, half a dozen or more times. So our fundamental, why do we have the gift of language? Fundamentally, it's so we can praise God, right? Mm-hmm. We can, you know, and and I think we have to remember that's really our, our home, right? That's our source. Yeah. That's where we're going back. And in a way, we have to just, trust in him that he will kind of make up for all of our lacks and right the yeah. only person who's ever spoken in a way that was completely identical to his being right is god when god speaks there's the word right when when he speaks his word he creates the universe the universe you know he becomes incarnate through the speaking of his word in jesus christ right you know our words are all we can do is hope to make them the best we can Right. You know, that yeah. we that we're yeah. never going to be able to fully communicate ourselves. But I do think we can use the words of the Psalms, the words of Jesus Christ uh, to put ourselves in better relationship with one another and with God. You know, it's interesting because uh, I remember reading Pope Benedict talking about East Germany and how there was so much fear at one point, you know, out of every five people, two were government informants. So if you had a family of five chances are, you know, someone's going to, you know, rat out someone in your own family and you were encouraged. Yes, yeah. It was part of their culture. And the people who engaged in resistance in East Germany, they took oaths to never tell a lie yes. because they saw that in, in times where free speech was so attacked, they saw that the only way to defend it was to, to have an absolute fidelity to the truth. And I found that to be so, so powerfully moving. Um, I don't know how you feel. I'm interested to get your thoughts on the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, especially really just around the, you know, his psychological, psychoanalytic views of his very Jungian views of Genesis. Have you ever seen any of his lectures on Genesis? Do you ever do that? I've um I've looked I've read a little bit of Peterson's work. Uh, I mm. have not I'm not a, a you know expert on it by any means. The thing that I think is very helpful is that the biblical stories right are foundational stories of origin, and I think yeah. Jordan Peterson does a wonderful job of showing how that they tell more truth in their mythological sense than modern culture does about yeah. who we are, right and now, we may also believe that they're actually true and revelatory, right? But the story mm-hmm. of Cain and Abel, right? It's like when you're fighting with your brother, your parents, in a way, should sit down and say, let's read the story of Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. We understand why you want to kill your brother. 
right? You know what I mean? It is hard, (laughs) right? But you don't have to. We understand why you want to gossip about your brother. It's hard to live with other people, right? The original sin in the Old Testament is never original. It keeps happening again and again and again, right? That's the whole, you know, theme. Uh, Every time Israel gets a new chance, you know, they mess it up. So to read in a way the story of Cain and Abel, not just, oh, that happened, but to kind of say, wait a second, how is that like, how is, how am I kind of like Cain? Right. It's interesting. Even Jesus Christ, and we mentioned this in the, uh, in, in the book is that, when Jesus says, right, if you have your gift at the altar and you have something against your brother, go and make it up to him. Literally, well, right. that is my favorite part of the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. That and, is and my favorite part. That. Yeah. And he says that right after saying, you know, it was said, don't kill your brother. But I say, don't even be angry at your brother. So, well, I think yeah. he's raising the context of the story of Cain and Abel. So we need to go back and say, wait a second. I see, I'm Cain. Or wait a second, I'm Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Eve did this, now my life's bad. This is what most people think. But we got to go back and say, wait a second, I'm Adam and I'm Eve because when something happens to me and I make a mistake, I blame someone else. Yeah, I relive that story. I relive the story of Cain and Abel. So I actually like the way that Jordan Peterson tries to show that these stories, if we read them kind of as origin myths almost, Yeah. Um, they are more than that, right? They are revealed truths that communicate to us in the, you know, poetic genre of very ancient stories, these truths. But I think there's something to be said there that we really need to derive much more meaning from these original stories. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. Peterson's able just to show that, though, that the modern world doesn't tell you how to deal with anger. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, right now we have people that are incredibly afraid and incredibly angry. And the only thing modernity says is, well, get angrier until people yeah. change. And you're like, well, that is not going to help us. How, like, I mean, how do we learn to, you know, deal with our anger, to deal with our fear? Yeah. Um, and, you know, even there in, in Abel, which is sometimes just you're going to have to suffer. Mm-hmm. And you just trust that somehow God will see your sacrifice. And ultimately, right, he does in a way through the blood of Abel all the way down to the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But so there's yeah. this kind of also this deep sense of you know, that we can learn to conquer our anger. We can take responsibility, you know, and 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 we often don't. I just want to, uh, you know, one one last thing. I do think it's helpful as a whole as like a takeaway for this book. Mm-hmm. It's just to say often, you know, we really don't have a good image of God. And in a way, we need to, this book and uh, the Bible helps us to really come to understand the truth about God, right? That God is a good creator who deeply loves us and has provided a way you know, for us to come back to him. And, the, but the other side of it is also is that we often don't understand ourselves, right? In a way, we have to admit in ourselves, we are much more broken. Uh, we break more things. We are <laughs> part of the problem than we ever want to admit. And in a way, Christianity teaches us that we're in a certain sense, right? You know, on our own, worse than we ever thought. But at the same time in Jesus Christ, Right. We are more loved than we ever imagined. Mm. And so I think that's really the, you know, the heart of um, I think it's in some ways the heart of the, the biblical uh, story and hopefully what we try to unpack yeah. uh, in, in the book. Yeah. No, I think you do a beautiful job. Uh, the book, again, for all our listeners, is The Wisdom of the Word, Biblical Answers to Ten Pressing Questions About Catholicism. Dave, you just hop back on. You want to you want to say anything you want to help round it out? Thanks so much for coming on, Dr. Duffinace, and, uh, you know, for doing this this awesome the work you do, and, and not just this, but I've had several 
of your publications, you know, come across my desk and things like that. So I appreciate all you're doing down there. Well, thank you very much, Dave and uh, Gomer. Uh, the book, by the way, is available at Word on Fire Press. You can go to www.wordonfire.org slash wisdom. And uh, I think if you find it there, you get 20% off. Ooh, nice. very nice. nice. Very nice. Uh, where can people find out uh, outside of the book more about you if they're interested in your work? Or... I don't have a separate web page, but uh, you can find my web page at Ave Maria. Univer like Ave Maria University, I think it's Ave Maria.edu under theology, uh, a faculty uh, listing there. And, and by the way, I just want to say one thing is that, you know, there's, I mentioned it right at the very beginning, it's so fun to have somebody read your book. And it's fun. We've gotten some emails from fallen away Catholics who, um, who kind of are just got frustrated over the crisis of the church that are yeah. older, that are reading the book and open to thinking about maybe coming back from an evangelical mm. Protestant who um, just thought that like many Protestants should read this book just to understand how much that the Catholics do actually care and understand <laughs> scripture and how that there's a kind of harmony uh, there. And also, you know, from an, um, another conversation with some, like basically some high schoolers who kind of have a certain sense of this belief in God and Jesus, but are kind of embarrassed about the church and don't, yeah. can't figure out how to navigate that. And, you know, so I, I just think there's a way in which I'm hopeful that, you know, people will really be helped by this book, right? That's the, you know, the, that they will find a way to overcome some of their own questions or at least find ways of helping others do the same. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's animated by a true spirit of evangelization. So thank you very much, Dr. Michael, for coming on the show. Uh, we appreciate you. Everyone, again, you'll find additional information where you can pick up the book, The Wisdom of the Word, Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions About Catholicism in our show notes. Thank you very much. And also thank Dr. Uh, Matthew for um, for contributing to this book. Uh, it really yes, is Matthew Levering is a wonderful co-author, and uh, he's a um, really brilliant theologian, and I'm uh, yeah. very blessed to be able to work with him. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. God bless y'all. God bless. Thank you. <laughs>